Hello, everybody. Before we start today's episode, Amari and I would like to spend a little bit of time discussing the unfortunate and saddening news story that broke this week around the Pistons organization involving the firing of Rob Murphy and his accuser, DJ Raska. I'm going to start by essentially reading my initial reaction from a tweet I sent out on the Motor City Hoops account. I know not everybody is on Twitter, and then I know Amari has some thoughts as well. So this was my initial reactions and kind of why this type of stuff hits home for me. And I said, I usually stick to basketball on this account, but this is awful, disturbing, and straight up scary as a teacher trying to prepare the next generation of students and someone that is raising a young daughter. It's terrifying that she could be subject to this type of treatment someday. And if she is, I hope she has the strength to come forward like Miss Roska did. Sometimes who and what matters most gets lost in these stories, but let's not forget her and her strength and the support she deserves. And again, Wes, the free press, myself, Amari, we all felt like we wanted to start off this week by addressing this issue and this news and what happened. And I'll turn it over to you right now, Amari. I know you had some thoughts on this uh, breaking as well. Yeah, just a little, you know, background for anybody who's completely out of the loop. Uh, the Pistons uh, fired Rob Murphy last week after a six-month investigation. He was placed on leave last October due to a workplace misconduct accusation. And then last week, uh, his accuser, DJ Raska, who was a former uh, executive assistant under him, uh, came forward to Detroit Free Press. That story ran last Thursday, uh, you know, in case anybody's out of the loop and wants to go online and read it. And she detailed... Uh, her experience, her and her lawyers detailed her experience uh, just with with uh, Rob Murphy and what led up to uh, her eventually f- uh, filing a, a formal accusation that Nets was firing last week. So, the, I mean, the details in the story are harrowing. Uh, you know, she details what was essentially, you know, months of sexual abuse and harassment. And, you know, we thought it was important to just leave this episode on and, you know, just make sure people are aware of what's going on as far as that. You know, again, I think, uh, you know, trigger warning here is probably fair because the details of the story are pretty bleak. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to shine a light on this stuff. Uh, You know, this is a situation that, you know, of course, could develop, you know, as as the time goes on. And, uh, you know, there's a legal situation that takes place there as well. But if you haven't read the story, you know, by all means, you know, check that out. You know, there's just some things that kind of go beyond basketball and it just wouldn't have felt appropriate to begin this episode without, you know, addressing that first. Yeah, absolutely. And again, guys, kind of like we're both, we want all the support and, and I guess attention to be on Miss Roska and what she's had to go through and, you know, moving forward. I, again, I feel like sometimes, you know, you start talking about all these other things and when the time comes, whenever we have all, everything we need to know, then we can talk about, the, the organization and, and all of that stuff. If, if there's more stuff to come, if there's not, whatever, we felt like right now the time was just to talk about and make sure people were aware of this again to, you know, having read the story, you know, yet yeah, be prepared to read some things that, that are hard to stomach and, and read. But we felt like it was important at least to support Miss Raska and, and get her story out there and continue to make sure people were aware of it. And, and I just want to touch on one more thing here, Amari. I had someone tweet back at me. Not only do we need to raise our young females to be prepared to speak up in these situations and hope that they're never in them, we also have to raise our young boys. I have two young boys. Obviously, I teach boys and girls in my classroom where I sit right now. We have to raise them to make sure they treat people the right way as well. So um, I know this one hit close to home for me, Omari. Just one, it was obviously the organization we talk about on a weekly basis, but also just as someone that has young kids and are around young kids all the time. So I don't know if you had any final words that you wanted to to throw out there um, or not. No, I mean, obviously, I don't, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not a teacher or anything such as that. But we've just seen over the last, you know, really, you know, six, seven, you know, years, um, you know, just people coming forward and, you know, just trying to shed light on, you know, some of these things that do happen behind the scenes. And, you know, like, it's it's, it's just tough. I mean, you know, it was a really, you know, tough read, you know, just to see, you know, what, you know, she said Rob Murphy put her through. And, I mean, I think just, you know, from top to uh, bottom, it's just a really, really, sad story uh you know so again uh you know she came forward to the detroit free press uh you know the organization that uh, released a statement to the, the free press last week uh you know just making it clear that they fired rob murphy and everything else can't don't really know what's going to happen you know from here as far as that you know obviously rob murphy is not a piss employee anymore but 
I do think we have a responsibility, you know, like, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, sports reporters or, you know, podcasters or whatever you want to say. But, you know, again, uh, we've seen diverse situations like this happen in the NBA world, the NFL world, uh, you know, women being mistreated. Uh, you know, it's been an ongoing story that goes beyond the Pistons. And we all need to do our part, you know, just to shed light on it and, you know, make sure these situations don't happen anymore. Agreed 100%. Again, we know we normally just talk coops on here and we will here in just a little bit. But all of us, Omari, West, the Free Press and myself, felt this was something that needed to be discussed. We are going to take a short break, guys, and then we will be back with our normal weekly episode. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon, Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper and high school coach, current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Senko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're always blessed to be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport, who takes care of us behind the scenes, does everything to make our lives easier, and getting this podcast out to you. Amari, to start off this week's episode, let's talk about the Pistons coaching search. I know there was some crazy confusion that went on. Um, I, I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday. I can't remember what. I'm like you. I don't remember what day it is anymore. Once summer hits, I definitely won't know what day it is anymore. But <laughs> there was some, I don't know, something came out that Kevin Ollie was essentially, it sounded like was going to be hired. And I know you came out. I don't want to say you refuted that, but you shed some light on what's really going on with the coaching search. So for anybody who's not on Twitter, social media, whatever, can you just give them some updates and some insight into where this really stands right now? Yeah, there was a tweet that came out uh, from an anonymous account that you know apparently has a reputation for being in the know uh, as far as college basketball news. And they tweeted that the Pistons were finalizing a deal to hire Kevin Ollie. And they're not finalizing a deal to hire Kevin Ollie right now. He's one of the front runners. Uh, they're flying out Ollie, uh, Milwaukee Bucks assistant Charles Lee, and New Orleans Pelicans assistant Jaron Collins out to LA to meet with Tom Gores this week. Uh, it could very well be Kevin Ali in the end, but they're not at the point now to where they're uh, finalizing anything. So we'll just have to see as far as that. You know, I think Ali uh, probably has the most unique resume of the three. Uh, hasn't been in the head coaching chair in five years, but, you know, it was once really one of, I think, the the, the brighter uh, coaching candidates out there uh, when he led UConn to that title in 2014. And, of course, had a long NBA career as well, so it's not like the qualifications are not there. Uh, and the Charles Lee, Jaron Collins, uh, Collins being a former NBA player himself as well, uh, probably more traditional paths to uh, being head coaches, but, you know, still a lot to come. It could be Ali, it could be Lee, it could be Collins, it could be somebody else entirely. Uh, you know, the Pistons are... Uh, you know, still kind of waiting through, you know, this 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 mess of candidates figuring out who the right person is to lead this next chapter of the rebuild. And, uh, really big decision, obviously. So, you know, maybe uh, by next podcast episode, uh, there will be some, you know, actual head coach hiring news to talk about. But for now, uh, they're just flying out those initial uh, front runners to LA to meet with Tom Gores. Well, since we don't have a new coach, Amari, let's just talk about who that guy might be coaching, whoever it is, and talk about the roster, who we can add to that roster and building this out. So we're going to go through this week, Omari, eight or nine prospects, and we're going to give where we have them ranked, and then also I put out a Twitter poll, so we kind of got a little bit of an idea. You can't just ask people to rank them one through nine on Twitter. That's not something that's available, but I did polls, and then you were able to kind of piece it together from there. I, I don't want to waste time on this if we don't need to. If you want a full breakdown on Victor Wembanyama. We brought on the amazing Jeremy Wu from ESPN NBA Draft Analyst. We did a whole first segment last episode on him. Do you have him at number one, Omari? Easy yes, easy yes. We don't even need to sit here and create drama for something that's very obvious, right? Okay, very good. So I have him number one as well. I didn't yeah. put that out in a poll on Twitter. I assume that Pistons Twitter would vote him number. It would be interesting to see if you know how many votes Scoo or. Uh, Brandon Miller would get in that poll. I may have to do it just for fun. But let's move on to Scoot Henderson. I have Scoot number two. I'll see in a second where you have Scoot. Actually, the Pistons Twitter poll ended up with Scoot at fifth, or excuse me, 49% out of 686 votes. This was just Scoot versus Miller. So the Pistons Twitter poll would actually have Brandon Miller number two with the way I did it. Um, where do you have Scoot Henderson? So I do have Scoot as my second best prospect, and we could get into, you know, maybe what separates 
those two players at two or three. I think in my mind, really, they are pretty close to the same tier. And that's, you know, I think talent-wise, you could maybe make a case that one has like maybe a higher floor, a higher ceiling or whatever else. Uh, I think long-term, a lot of that just kind of comes down to fit. And I think I'm at the point now to where if you want to pass on Scoot because of fit concerns, that that is a completely valid opinion to have. So he's still my number two prospect. I think his ceiling is probably higher than Brendan Miller's. But I think if you talk about archetypes and, and fit and everything else, you could very well say, you know, Brendan Miller's a better fit on number two. This is crazy because actually we're going to agree on this. And I know what people are going to do. They're going to say, well, two months ago, you and Amari said, take Scoot. That's it. Guys, the data changes. Things happen. Brandon Miller was way better by the end of the season. Even, And I'm going to give you some numbers, and I'm going to play devil's advocate with Brandon Miller here on this episode just to have some fun. But I think I'm with you. I have scoot number two on my board, just like you, Amari. But I think what where I'm debating right now is, is Brandon Miller in the same tier as Scoot? Because Brandon Miller's my number three prospect. Sorry, spoiler alert. But I don't know. I think I have him in the same tier. If I have him in the same tier, then for me, this is my draft philosophy, then you do look at fit. Let's talk about Scoot in general, though, Amari. So I looked up some stats. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this. He was 43% on catch-and-shoot three-pointers this year. It was a small sample. In his first year with the G League, night, he was only 19%. So that's a huge jump. Also, if you look at Cade's catch-and-shoot numbers, so this is talking about these guys being able to play together, play off-ball a little bit. Cade catch-and-shoot numbers. Oklahoma State, 46%. This is all from three, obviously. Montverde, 55%. EYBL before his senior year of high school, 47%. Overall, pre-NBA, Cade was 45% on catch-and-shoot threes. So I do think there's more ability for this to work offensively than what some people are giving it credit for. What are your thoughts on that? Just Cade, we saw Ivy shoot really well. I believe it was just on unguarded. Yeah, 47% on unguarded catch and shoot threes in his rookie season. What are your thoughts if those three guys took the floor together? I think it could work, but there are varying levels of work. And I think, <laughs> so, you know, what I mean by that, is I think size wise it works. I think Scoot, you know, being the smallest of the three at six two, you know, probably starts it most naturally at the one. Ivy, I mean, we talked a lot about his on ball growth, but I think long term he's still probably somebody you want a ball handler next to. It's good that he can handle, uh, you know, maybe being the primary guy uh, at a better rate than we anticipated coming into his rookie season. But uh, I want him attacking gaps. You know, I want him taking catch and shoot threes off off the ball. I don't want him to have to play make hundred percent of the time which i think fits for him the problem and you know this isn't like it's something that would like kill lineups or anything but the problem is playing Cade at the three and i think if you have all three of those guys on the floor probably only two of them are handling most of the initiating so at that point who becomes the pure off ball player i think I probably don't want any of those guys to be like really off ball. I think they're all too talented to do that. And I think if you talk about just use of a resource, then you can probably find somebody who compliments them better than Scoot, uh, who really doesn't compliment them at all. I think it's more so than playing off of Scoot than the other way around, just because Scoot probably is the uh, poorest shooter of the three, right? So, you know, you use these top set uh, five picks on two guys in a row, and then you're like, all right, we're playing you off ball a lot more. Uh, I don't think. I think Ivy can handle that. I think you want the ball in Cade's hands. I think he's just so cerebral with the ball that, you know, that's that's probably not a good situation for him to be in. And then him also, okay, six six, like seven foot wingspan. Yeah, he can defend threes. Uh, I don't know if I want him defending threes all night, every night. So I think, yeah, it could work. Like, I think just talent-wise, we have two you know, extremely plus athletes. Uh, you know, Cade can do everything. Like, it works. It's just it probably doesn't work as well as it would be if you just allowed them to be the one and two and then instead of squeaking, you have somebody else come in. But does it work? Yeah, I think it does work. That's a really good point that two ball handlers on the floor at all times isn't a bad thing, right? Like you can find ways to run actions and be creative. And again, I, I just want to point this out. One of our biggest critiques, and this is me as well, with Dwayne Casey offensively was not enough creativity. Well, this would be a chance to get a coach and be fun and creative with this three-guard lineup. And so like I get excited as a coach what can I do with these guys? Man, I can run an action here, get them an advantage. Now Cade's attacking an advantage. You can also stagger them. But I think that's fair. If, it's easy to do that with two guys. With three, you probably do have a guy that 
quote unquote, is standing in the corner. I know that's a phrase that Pistons fans do not like to hear. But I will say this. Wes was the first one that brought this up to me and kind of convinced me that defensively is where it's a little bit more of a concern. And I will say, I talked to an NBA scout recently from a different NBA organization, somebody I know from the past, and he brought up the same thing. I said, well, offensively, I think it can work. And he said, yeah, it can. But defensively, exactly what you said, exactly what Wes has been pitching to me, is that really what you want Cade Cunningham doing night in and night out? So I'd have to go through like all of the rosters in the NBA to see how big of an issue it would be. But I do think that that's the fair and bigger concern is, okay, how do all the defensive matchups work on a nightly basis? Yeah, I think defensively it's just... I'd rather have a big backcourt of Ivy, and, and this is just me, me talking. I think you make an argument that you put Scoot in and you're fine. To me, if you could just have a big backcourt of Ivy and Kate, I think the defensive upside there is really strong. I think both of those guys are really good shooting upside. We know the rest of their games. Uh, at that point, just how do you maximize their games? And I think it's probably giving them more size around them and more spacing. And Scoot does not do those things. So can it work? Yes. You know, and I think just looking at the way the NBA is trending, uh, to double down on, I think at that point, a small lineup, you could have a big lineup, probably pushes you in a direction that doesn't maximize everybody's skill set. I think it's a big difference between playing a 6'2", 6'4", 6'6", guy together, and a 6'2", guy is your smallest guy. Whereas you could have Ivy being the smallest guy on the floor, and he's still a point guard, K is a point guard, and then you could kind of go up from there. Uh, that probably positions you better to handle just the way the NBA is trending. I mean, you know, you have a lot of fours, you have a lot of even bigs now with guard skills, and uh, you can play small at times, but there's just some matchups that are just going to crush you doing that. And, you know, there's probably just better ways to maximize uh, whoever you pair Kate and Ivy with. All right, let's talk about Brandon Miller then. The guy yeah. that would be number three on my board sounds like number three on your board. I think he would be number two if you just went Pistons Twitter board. It would mm. be very close. But both of us are talking about essentially having him in the same tier as Scoot Henderson. Where Here's what I do want to say, Amari. I've listened to Rafael Barlow, who I respect and who I know you can listen to him. NBA teams ask him about scouting. Say, Brandon Miller for the Pistons, undoubtedly number two. I also just listened to a podcast of Sam Vecini and Adam Spinella say that Vecini said he almost saw a higher ceiling for Cam Whitmore than Brandon Miller. And I think Vecini wouldn't take Brandon Miller for the Pistons at number two. So my point is, can we stop crucifying anybody who says one or the other? Like, that's the thing that's frustrating to me right now is seeing people go, Brandon Miller is the perfect fit. Essentially, you're an idiot if you don't. Like, I respect that opinion. I think we both do. I think we both see both sides of it. But we're talking about professionals who NBA teams literally call for advice in scouting reports, and they're on completely ends of the spectrum of this. So if those two guys can disagree or, or have different opinions, then I think it's okay for someone to think Scoo and somebody else to think Brandon Miller. Sorry, I'll get off my, my soapbox. I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> no, the thing about the draft is that nobody really knows anything. I mean, you can look at any draft, and I think whatever framework you, you approach the draft with gets blown up. Uh, pretty thoroughly, you know, for that first year and really within the first few months, uh, you know, players don't always make the transition you expect them to. I know a lot of analysts were really high on Jalen Suggs a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, and he's had a pretty rough start to his career offensively. A lot of the defense stuff has translated to offense, you know, a ways to go. And he was seen as a ready-made guy. Uh, that doesn't mean he can't figure it out, but I just use that as an example to say, Nobody knows anything. Like, even the experts, NBA teams, nobody really knows anything when it comes to the draft. If you think Taylor Hendricks is going to be the best player in this draft, you know what? You do you. I'm not going to say that you're wrong. Because <laughs> yeah, there are, you know, just factors we can't really account for, right? So, yeah, again, like, I think a lot of people, and this is just in general, like, we've even kind of seen it with the coaching search and all this, is that people have opinions, but they tend to stick to those opinions like they're facts, right? So, uh, you know, I'll just leave it at that. But as far as Brendan Miller... I mean, there's a lot to like about his game. I mean, I mean, you mentioned the shooting, like absolutely an elite shooter at 6'9". And I think a lot of the appeal for him really just kind of starts and stops there, honestly. Like, you know, day one, he's going to be an elite shooter. And that goes a long way. But I think you look at the rest of his game, and he did have a little bit of off-the-dribble pop. You know, I think as a ball handler, he'll be fine. Uh, he had some playmaking chops. Like, I don't think the assist turnover ratio was where he necessarily wanted to be. But I look at a guy like him, and you put him on an NBA team, and he's not going to have to play make much, put him on the Pistons. You're not going to need him to do a whole lot. Like, literally just attack, close out, maybe find an open shooter. You're making maybe one, two reads tops. Like, I think he's very capable of doing that. And he got better at finishing at the rim uh, as the season went on. 
And I just look at his game and I can just see somebody, I don't know if he is a perennial all-star, but I think he is perennially somebody who can get you 18 to 21 a game. I think he'll rebound pretty solidly. And I think he's got good defensive tools as well. And that's a player who could fit on any, on any roster in the NBA, uh, especially a Pistons team where that's pretty close to the ideal player that they need, you know, to kind of fill that hole they have in their wing lineup as well. I do wonder what the intel is going to be like with Brandon Miller. I've had someone, you know, just his personality, the work ethic. And I think because of his off the court stuff, I don't know that we're going to hear any of that. And that's a, a lot of this stuff. You're talking about how the NBA drafts in inexact science for NBA teams. It's even harder for us, right? We don't know what these kids' personality is. We don't know what makes them tick, how hard of workers, what their motivations are. I'm going to make the argument for Scoot over Miller with numbers, Omari. So let me go through this real fast. And then I would love to hear what you think. One, Scoot is 15 months younger than Brandon Miller. Miller had a negative assist-to-turnover ratio. People crush Scoot Henderson for having an unimpressive close to the season. This was Brandon Miller in March. 31% from the field, 26% from three. Now, he did still shoot 92% from the free throw line and had a negative assist-to-turnover ratio. And I don't like doing this. Like, I hate crushing Brandon Miller, but I just feel like Scoot gets nitpicked to death and then we don't do it with Brandon Miller. What was really interesting was I looked at Brandon Miller versus Ken Palm top 100 adjusted defenses. It's all over the place, Amari. Started off the season, first four games, 37, 41, 33% from three. Then he had a stretch, uh, I think it was 11 games in the middle of the year. He was 48% from the field, 58% from two, 39% from three. And then the six games to the end, I kind of gave those numbers, wasn't very good. So it just was, a, it was kind of like a started off okay, had a great stretch in January, February in SEC play. And then he didn't end the season very well either. So I just feel like sometimes we don't nitpick Brandon Miller because we do think he's such a perfect fit. Yeah, I mean, and you know me, I'm a big believer in, you know, players who kind of pop uh, earlier in their career arcs compared to other players. Uh, you know, I think that really bodes well for them going into the NBA. And I think the thing about Scoot, well, I think any player who's been in the public eye as long as Scoot's been, whereas Brandon Miller really didn't emerge as a prospect he is until like this past season where Scoot, like this is second year in the G League. And, uh, I think he started when he was 17 years old. So just really an outlier as far as how he was able to play up uh, a level in competition uh, while still being a teenager. And I try to keep that in mind, my evaluations as well. But the thing about Scoot is that two years in the G League, and you're playing against grown men, right? Like you're not playing against, like obviously like a lot of college age kids, but you know, you're playing against guys who are, you know, 27, 28, 29, 30, you know, maybe some things are going to translate as quickly for him, but it's just been a lot more time to, to nitpick him really. Yeah, you know, I think that's that, true. And I think that's just something that like works against him and also playing against higher competition. People bring up, well, he's not, you know, the strongest shooter and this and that. Uh, you're not really drafting him for the shooting. You're drafting him because he is an elite athlete, you know, very vertically gifted. He's fast. Uh, he's got, just an excellent, excellent handle. Uh, you know, I think he's got a really long wingspan, so you see the defensive upside, even if I don't know he'll, if he'll be a lockdown defender at the next double. But he's also got good touch at the rim and from mid-range, and those are the things that leads you to believe he could eventually become a shooter at the next level, even if I don't expect that the first couple of years. But we've just had longer time to nitpick Scoot, and I think I still have him as my number two player just because I think because of his age and because of what he's done in the G League at a young age. I just think his long-term tra trajectory is greater. Uh, the only thing that really knocks him is the fact that he's 6'2 and not 6'4 or 6'5. And you know, I've talked about this in the pod, we, we both have, but I think smaller guards, uh, especially when he gets to the playoffs, you're having an off-offensive night that it's just, like you're just really dragging the team down. And I think that those players are way more prone to that versus guys who are bigger and you know can at least be more of an impact defensively. And I want to emphasize, both of us have Scoot 2, Miller 3, but I think both of us are leaning to having them in the same tier, which means we would completely understand taking Brandon Miller with the number two pick. I legit went into this episode saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the argument for Scoot over Brandon Miller. I'm going to nitpick Brandon Miller a little bit because I feel like it doesn't happen a whole lot. And I just wanted to give some people some things to think about. So one last thing, and you talked about this a little bit, Scoot wasn't playing on a great team with the G League night in comparison to who he was playing against. Like I've watched all those games. Like I don't feel like he has a pick and roll teammate, like someone he can just use in a pick. Like you don't have Jalen Duran. I can tell you that. Brandon Miller was playing on 
for what was considered most of the season to be the number one team in college basketball and a team that ran a ton of really nice sets to get him looks. So I think there's just a lot of little nuances to take into account for both. And I feel like sometimes we do that with Scoot, but we don't do it with Brandon Miller. Again, both really big time prospects. I think either one of us would be happy with either one of them if the Pistons took them. And, you know, one fits seamlessly. We agree with that. The other one would take a little more creativity. We are going to go to a short break. And then whenever we come back, we're going to dive into Amin Thompson, see where Amari has him on the board, where I do, and where Pistons Twitter has him. All right, we're back with segment two. And I think me and Bryce's uh, draft big board is kind of different a bit going through our top nines. But we'll start off with a Ben Thompson, who I think is a very popular pick to go number four after that top three, which seems pretty locked in now. And Bryce, I'll let you lead off. Like I've expressed my skepticism with the Thompson twins. I think that they're NBA prospects, but there's just a lot that kind of scares me about them. But I'll let you lead off because I know you have uh, Amin right there at, at, at four. And I think I have him a little bit later at, at uh, six. Yeah, so I have a minute four as well. Interesting, you have him at six. I will say, though, this is going to be similar to what we just talked about because I have a in four, I have Cam Whitmore five, but I have them in the same tier, Omari. And mm-hmm. if we want to talk about fits, I think Cam Whitmore is a better fit than Amin Thompson. I find it interesting, again, we worry about fit with Scoo, but we don't worry about it with Amin. Amin Thompson, if you look at synergy play types, Omari, 25 games played, they tracked. Transition, obviously, is number one play type. That's just how the game is played. Number two, pick and roll ball handler. This is a guy who's at the best with the ball in his hands. I realize he's super athletic. He's even worse than Scoot, though, on catch and shoot three-pointers, 29%. So I just, I, I like him in. I like a lot of his things. I like him way more than I like Asar. I'll go ahead and get that out of the way. But if you're worried about fits, like this is another concern because I think he gives you less than what Scoot does. With that said, he's better fit defensively but man, I, I think we're giving the Thompson twins a little too much credit for the defensive upside. There's a lot of really bad habits those two guys are going to have to break early in their career on that end of the floor. I agree. I will say the main reason why I have Amin at six and not even lower is because of how gifted he is as an athlete. He is like a day one top 10, just pure athlete in the NBA when you look at the speed, the leaping ability, the coordination. Uh, you see a lot of John Morant and some of the things he's able to do. And I don't know if he has quite the, like, so John's like the complete package, right? Like, where what's, like not only can he jump over a lot of people, but when he's in midair, he's just a complete acrobat. Uh, just his body control is insane. I don't know if Aubin has that level of body control, but I think what he's just able to do athletically, you kind of get into the same defenses we have for Jaden Ivey this time last year, where it's like, yes, right on his game, but something's just going to come so much easier because of his size. I mean, he's 6'7", and just because of just how naturally gifted he is as an athlete. And I think the floor vision with him is also legit. Like, there's no question in my mind that he could be some level of effective as an NBA-level point guard. It's really two things that kind of terrify me with him. I think one is the shooting. And he's a he's a non-shooter. I would put him in the non-shooter category. He took threes at every time elite. Uh, he didn't make a lot of them. Him and his brother, Asar, they completely played off of him. Let him take wide open shots. They just couldn't hit them at all. They both shot below 30%. They also both shot below 70% at the free throw line. And I just look at that. And they're both 20 years old. And I, this goes me to the other part. There's that overtime elite has players 16, 17, 18 years old, right? Like this is a training program, you know, you have a lot of high school age players and Amin and Asar being 20 years old are two of the oldest in that league, if not the oldest. I went through their ages a couple months ago and I really didn't see anybody else listen at 20 years old. Plus everybody was 19 or younger and uh, you had more players who were 16 really than who were like 20. Uh, so it's just, you're playing against younger competition and you can't shoot at all. And I think even if though he's big and he could get downhill, I think his finishing numbers were really good. A player who just is a complete non-shooter, and you hope that they develop that. Uh, my draft philosophy is if you don't really show any type of shooting touch at the lower levels, it's probably not going to translate at the higher level. There are always outliers, but I'm not going to bank on somebody being an outlier. I'm going to look at the data, and I'm just going to say this is probably who they are and what they're going to be. 
No, that's fair. I think you hit a lot of it nail on the head right there. I will say a lot of the finishing numbers come in transition. Those definitely boost those numbers. I will say, and we've had Matt Babcock on. So if you want more conversation around a man and a star, go back and check that out. Cause I do want to move to the next guy, but the Intel sounds really, really good around these two that they're really hard workers, great kids, all of that stuff. And I will say, so I think in this poll, it was a men, Cam Whitmore and Jairus Walker. A men did win that Piston Twitter poll with 37% of the votes out of 309. So that would put him fourth on the Pistons Twitter board based off of that. But I want to talk about Cam Whitmore. This is the guy that my, our guy Wes has just been, he, he hits me up almost daily about this kid. I was a little lower coming into college. He had a rough start injury. Villanova was kind of a mess there. This year, but I'll tell you, he has grown on me, Amari. And I will say this again: whether Sam Bassini is one of the biggest names in you know NBA draft media, and a guy that if you listen to his podcast, NBA teams call him. He said on his most recent podcast that he sees at least just as high a ceiling, if not higher ceiling, for Cam Whitmore than Brandon Miller. So that's pretty high praise. And I think he has a high floor as well, Omari. I think he's at least a 3 and D guy, super explosive. I buy the shots. I'm kind of getting in more and more. I'll just give you these numbers. 40% on catch-and-shoot three-pointers, 38% on guarded, 46% on unguarded. So this is a kid that can shoot it. He's explosive. And I think there's some real 3 and D in terms of the defensive potential as well. So it's funny. I'm looking at our our draft boards now. We have the same four through six, but in a different order, right? So you had, uh, I'm in four. We both had Whitmore at five. The only difference is that you had Taylor Hendricks six and I had Taylor Hendricks four. There we go. I think we have all these guys in the same tier. So I get back to Whitmore, who I've really warmed up on a lot, really in the last couple of weeks. I've dived more into his film. And I think he's just a quintessential. The numbers don't really... Uh, accurately like showcase his game and who he is as a player. Uh, he has age in his favor, too. He's one of the younger players in the draft, but he's just a very powerful athlete. He reminds, watching the way he, he jumps and the way he gets down the floor kind of reminds me of Anthony Edwards, and he's not an on-ball guy like Edwards, so he's not going to necessarily be that, you know, like, you know, same type of on-ball threat as uh, Anthony Edwards, and I don't know if he's as fast, but just the power he has in his leaping, the power he has getting downhill, uh, just being able to just shoulder bars guys out of the way, like player, like guys bounce off of him. Like, he has that. Uh, and then the rest of his game, I mean, I think he's a better shooter than his numbers showed. I think his life has become a lot easier in the NBA. He's a really instinctive cutter, which I think really bodes well just as far as his off-ball gravity. And I think the cutting, I think – I buy into the shooting, but just how powerful he is as an athlete. Like, I think he could just be a really, really effective sort of three, four hybrid in the NBA. And if that shooting really comes around, he could be, I think his ceiling could be like a more athletic Tobias Harris. Like, I kind of see that in this game. Yeah, and he has a really, really good and explosive first step. He doesn't have a real mm-hmm. creative handle, Amari. You know, no. the assist-to-turnover ratio isn't great, but that's not going to be like a goal. straight-line drive. Straight-line, and I just... Yeah. I know what's going to happen. We've already talked about it a little bit. Sadiq Bey. One, Sadiq Bey was an older sophomore. Cam Whitmore is a young freshman. He'll not turn 19 until he's playing at Summer League. So Whitmore is one of the younger guys in the draft. I want to give you at-the-rim numbers. Cam Whitmore was 65% on 121 attempts in less games and had 32 dunks in his freshman season as a young freshman. Bay in his sophomore season as an older sophomore, 59% on 115 attempts at the rim with just 21 dunks. These are not the same player whenever attacking the rim. Whitmore is insanely more athletic than Sadiq Bay. I just, you're going to look at him because Sadiq Bay is a stronger guy. Whitmore is a stronger guy. The 3 and D label is going to get thrown around. We're looking at different types of prospects. Whitmore's way more explosive, way more athletic, and I think has a way better and bigger ceiling on the defensive end. And so I, I continue, I, I'm fine if Cam Whitmore's the pick at number four, if that's where the Pistons landed, or if they got him at five, if they landed at five. I would come out still pretty encouraged with that pick. I agree. And I'll also, going back to the Anthony Edwards comparison, Edwards had a lot of red flags coming out of college, uh, you know, because the numbers didn't quite represent his game. He was young. He made a lot of boneheaded mistakes. Uh, There's some questions about his personality and everything. Then he gets to the NBA. He did have a rough start to his rookie year, but then he kind of clicked. And it's just been nothing but upside since. 
I just see a lot of parallels there. Like, I think, I really do think Cam Whitworth could be the wing version of Anthony Edwards. I see a lot of, you know, parallels and just how they attack the game, their athleticism, their physicality. And I think, you know, even though Cam Whitworth probably didn't have the best situation at Villanova, you could just see the IQ pop. Like, he knows how to play. He knows how to make things easier for his teammates. And I just imagine him, you put him with Ked, you put him with Ivy, uh, you know, the big Pistons have during, and you just have this outside spacing and this kind of vertical spacing at the rim. He's just going to have open lanes to the rim. He's going to get open shots. Like, I could just see him coming in and just really being a dog from day one. So I, I, I have Hendricks four and Whitmore five, but I like both of those guys enough to where I think either of them could go four and it would just be fine. Like, there's not a huge amount of separation between them. Uh, you know, they're also very different players, but Whitmore four to me if you just want to go for an upside pick, but also a guy who has a pretty clean floor as well. I think he checks all those boxes. I was like, he's rising up my board somehow as we talk about him. And I didn't, like, I just, I, it, it, it sounds really good. I like it. Uh, he was number five in the Twitter board. He got 35% in that poll. So right behind Amin, to be honest with you. So really close. The other guy I had in that one was Jairus Walker. He got 28% of the votes, which would put him six. So I had Asar, Taylor Hendricks, and Anthony Black in their own poll. Obviously, I can only put four if you're not familiar with Twitter. And I'll give those results in a second. This is going to be interesting because both you and I, Amari, have Jairus Walker at seven. And as you've outlined, that's below Taylor Hendricks for both of us. And one second, before you, be, before you get to Walker, why do you have Hendricks at uh, six? Um, behind? Behind Ahmed and uh, Whitmore. I just don't think the the ceiling is as high for Taylor Hendricks. So I think his floor is probably higher than Amin especially with a Pistons team where I think he fits really well. And I think there's real 3 and D stuff there for him. I don't think he's the same off-the-dribble explosiveness that Cam is. And I also don't think he has the same level of versatility as Cam does. I think Taylor Hendricks is more of like just a true forward, like a four. I think you brought up the Jeremy Grant comparison. I really like that. And if he can improve in the NBA the way Jeremy Grant did off the bounce, then there's the ceiling that I'm saying that I don't see. So I just think he's in a tier below, but he's definitely the top of that next tier for me. Yeah, I'll put Hendricks at four just because I just love who he is defensively. I think he's a perfect modern four uh, defensively where uh, probably doesn't quite have the bulk to play the five and maybe able to come down the line. But he's just really shifty. He's really mobile. He's sick with guys in the perimeter. But just his timing and instincts on rotations and just at the rim in general, I think are just fantastic. And you combine that with the shooting, like he shot the ball really well. Like as UCF, people talk about the competition level. Uh, that doesn't really bother me as much. Like I feel better about UCF's competition than overtime elites, <laughs> you know, to be quite honest with you. Like he could make the same criticism about, you know, Jalen Duran playing with Memphis, but clearly Duran was fine last year. And I just look at his tools and he kind of reminds me of certain like old school Sergi Baca was blocking a lot of shots, but you know, I think the three came a little bit later for him. But I just see like Sergi Baca, maybe like a, a, a four version of Miles Turner instead of a five. But to me, he's just somebody who's going to have a long NBA career. He does exactly what you want from a modern four. You know, I think he doesn't really he's not really a guy you want to make plays with the ball, but I do think he can attack closeouts and maybe make some simple plays there. So I just feel good about him. I just feel really good about Taylor Hendricks. I have him in like that four through six range. And I think he's a guy who could really surprise people and be pretty effective from day one as well. So I'll say this. I, I don't take Taylor Hendricks in the top four if I'm the Pistons, no matter what. You know, the three go off the board. I'm taking Cam Whitmore over him 100% of the time based off what we know right now. At five, I can have a conversation between him and Amin, and if you want to throw Jairus Walker and Asar and whoever else in there. I'll, I'll have the conversation. Right now, today, I would still lean Amin. But I will tell you this. So you're looking at a true 3 and D prototype, 40% on catch-and-shoot three-pointers, and just looking at his play types, Amari, 31% of them were spot-ups, 13% cuts, 12 Like, you're looking at a true all-around off-the-ball player. He was 58% at the rim on 142 attempts and 37 dunks. That was very comparable to what Jeremy Grant did in his last year at Syracuse. That, that was a really interesting comparison you brought. I know you're not saying it's one-to-one, -one, but mm -hmm. that's the type of defensive player you're looking at where there's some versatility to guard threes. You could probably switch on to fives and survive, not against Joel Embiid and those guys. We all understand that but he can block shots on the ball but he can also be this weak side rim protector I do like what he does again I think Whitmore's overall ceiling and versatility is just higher but I'm with you in terms of I like Hendricks 
more than I like Jairus Walker and you do as well. And I don't think that that's going to be accepted very well by the fan base. You know, I'm curious about that. I think Walker, like I like Walker's game a lot for one. Uh, you know, there's no question that he would be an effective NBA player, uh, but he does seem to be pretty popular with Pistons fans. And I, you know, I like, I'm just curious about that. I'm curious what it is about him that kind of makes him pop more than other players. I would guess part of it is probably just, I think Walker has like a meaner game than like Kendrick's. And I think, Pistons fans are just just looking at the history of Pistons bigs. I think that's just something that Pistons fans are naturally attracted to. So it could just be as simple as that. Yeah, no, I think there's a level of he just fits the personality of Detroit. I do. I want to add this, and I don't know if this is true. Richard Sunley tweeted this and commented on the poll, and I, I trust Richard, but he said he was listening to a commentary watching the Houston game. He said, Walker makes sure the walk-ons get paid before he touches a penny of his NIL money. I was like, okay, that was that was pretty cool insight about who Jairus Walker is. And again, one thing that's kind of, wanted to emphasize on this episode is a lot of intel is going to come over the next month or so before the draft. We've seen, I saw the other day, Imani Bates was working out for the Hornets and so-and-so was working out for, you know, there's a lot of these workouts that are going to start, interviews with team, obviously the Combine's coming up, the G League Combine. We're going to start to hear about a lot of who these guys are and how teams trust them and their personalities and how they fit that way along with on-the-court fit and those things. And I want to say one thing about Jairus Walker, Amari. There's a lot of people who say he can guard one through five. There is a vast difference, Amari, between guarding one through five and being able to switch one through five. One, I don't think he can switch onto ones. He probably can switch onto two through five. He's not guarding or matching up with two through five. This is the same, same thing with Victor Wimbenyama. I don't think you can match Victor up with a three, running him off screens and stuff like that. Can he switch on a three and survive? Yes. Those are very different things. And it also depends on who that three man is, right? But I think that's important distinction. You can't just run Jairus Walker out there and he's guarding Steph Curry to start the game. I don't see that personally. Um, maybe some people do. I think he's a switch on to those guys, two through five, not match up with them to start a possession. You know, it's funny. I wrote that about Isaiah Stewart last week. Like he can switch with the smarter players, but you don't necessarily want him starting off a game guarding a um, one, which, you know, I mean, like these guys are like six, seven, six, eight. I think that's that's normal. But if you're talking about defensive upside, I think that's an important distinction because there are players that size who could actually handle themselves, you know, against ones for a whole game a lot better. I think Walker, I think the mentality he plays with, I think the fire he plays with, you know, his willingness to do the little things, uh, you know, I think he could, def I feel better about him, like maybe being able to, to defend three through five really well. And, maybe switching on the ones and maybe some bigger twos he can really defend as well. So he is a player who is just a really good chess piece to have in whatever like defensive lineup you're running with. Uh, I think he is, I think offensively he does like a lot of interesting things. Like you kind of see the passing upside, like he's got really good touch in the paint. Uh, you know, I, like what he's like six, eight, um, you know, I don't know how much like back to basket stuff he'll be doing like in, in general. So it'll probably be a lot more, uh, just like pick and rolling and, you know, things like that. And he's a pretty good athlete as well. The shooting is why I kind of bump him a little bit lower than Hendricks, just because 34% catch and shoot is not great. And you know, I think he had a hot streak last season and he kind of went cold, you know, down the stretch. But, you know, for him to really be an effective starting four in the NBA, uh, he's probably going to have to shoot the ball a little, little bit better than he did. And that's going to be a growth area for him. So I want to touch on Asar real quick, and then I want to give you a chance to talk about the number nine guy on your board because he's not something we've talked about. Asar, 31% on all catch-and-shoot three-pointers. So we have concerns about Amin shooting. Well, Amin was 29. Asar's only 2% better. And I'll just say this, and then we can move on to your number nine guy. I don't think Asar is an on-the-ball guy. I know there's people who think that he is, and he's only playing in Amin's shadow. I think that's really hard to change whenever you're 21 years old, going from playing off the ball as much as Asar has. I don't think he has his creative handle. I don't think the passing is as good. I just don't think he's going to come in. I've heard people say like he's an NBA point guard. I don't think that that's going to happen. Is he going to be a very good secondary creator? Sure. 
but he's got to be able to shoot it. And being able to shoot is even more of a factor for him. And you outlined why neither of us really trust that. And just like with the men, the defensive stuff is a concern and it's going to take time for them to really reach that potential because there are some awful, awful habits after watching that. With that said, oh, you go ahead. If you have a little bit on SAR and then go ahead and, and roll into your number nine guy. Yeah, I was just going to say I left Asar off my top nine entirely just because I don't see him as a lead point guard. I see him more as like a connective tissue wing, which is fine. But again, he has the same shooting deficiencies as our men. And if you're not going to be an on-ball guy, you're not dictating, you know, like when and how you can get to your spots and get downhill and whatnot. To me, that just makes you inherently a lot more limited. And I see Asar as more of like an Evan Turner which is like fine, like a, so they can be an effective player. But just those guys being complete non-shooters at a competition level is just, uh, I just, I just wouldn't feel comfortable using like very high picks on them. Uh, I know there's a lot of variance for people who are differently about OTE and the competition level and, you know, this and that. I just look at that and I just feel better about other players. We, we both had Anthony Black in that range. To me, Anthony Black is... He, he does a lot of the things you would want to see from them uh, to, to an even high, higher level. We both had him. My number nine guy was Cason Wallace. And, like, again, we kind of get into, like, the utility of point guards in today's NBA, this and that. He is one of the best defensive players in the entire draft. I think he could be a day one plus defender at the guard position and just an absolute dog on defense. Anything you want your guard to be able to do, he can do. And I think he could probably defend twos and some threes as well just because of his instincts, how pesky he is, just the way he navigates screens, just he gets his chest to the people. Like, there's a physicality to his defense. He's just, you know, I think he could be a Marcus Smart-level defender at the point guard position or even Drew Holland. I think he could get to that level. Like, I really buy into what he can do defensively. But he can also, he also sees the floor very well uh, you know, so he he's a legit true point guard. And he also shot the three well enough that I think he'll be an effective shooter at the NBA. So is he going to be like this superstar type guy? Probably not, unless he really makes some gains as far as being able to get to the rim and get separation of this and that. He's not like an amazing athlete. I think he only took like two free throws a game. Uh, you know, so he's not necessarily a downhill player, but just he is to me the perfect three and B point guard. And I think he could be a long-time starter in the NBA, and I think he gives you a defensive identity as well, and that's why I put him at number nine. I would say he's the perfect 3 and D guard, Omari, because you know who he'd play really well nice to? Cade Cunningham. You put him next to Cade, let Cade create. He spaces the floor offensively. He gets to just knock down shots because he's not great getting all the way to the rim, although we have seen a lot of Kentucky guards look way better offensively when they get to the NBA than they were in college. But I'm with you. He is sensational defensively. And I want to give Anthony Black just a little bit of love before we go to the break and then bring Wes on to play Sheet or Sham. Sam Bassini, and I know I've referenced him a lot, he said he has the highest basketball IQ in this class. He's really high on him in terms of that. I think he is in that same vein you're talking about. He's kind of a connector piece. I don't know that he's a true point guard, but where that makes it hard, Omari, almost 40% of his play types were as a pick-and-roll ball handler. So how does that you know, move to off the ball? But another guy who's rangy, who could be a good defender, just this connector-type piece. So at some point, we probably need to talk a little bit more about Anthony Black because I do think he's probably in play um, at number five, if that's where the Pistons landed. Probably not above that, but at least at number five, maybe number four. Yeah, and Black, he's just another guy where if he shot the ball better, I'd be higher on him. But I do think he is on a different stage as far as the Thompson Twins, as far as the shooting. I don't think he's a non-shooter. I think he's a poor shooter. There's a difference. And you know, I also think Arkansas did not have the best spacing. Uh, but my main concern with Anthony Black is just to really just speed up his his, his form. Like the a p- player I would compare him to is Kyle Anderson, but he's a better athlete than Kyle Anderson. Like you're not going to call him snowmo. He's not as slow as Kyle. Like he's you know better at, at the rim. He had a good amount of dunks last year. Uh, the shooting for him is probably really the only uh, thing that kind of makes me wonder about how he'll transition to the next level. But everything else is great, and to me, he's one of the highest floor prospects in the entire draft. Yeah, and he got to the free throw line a ton this last year. And his yes, shooting, and, and in fairness, Omar, his shooting was better. Th- if you ask anybody, his shooting was better this year than what a lot of people thought it was going to be as a freshman. And that's a good, and he was willing to take him whenever he needed to. So that, sometimes just being willing to, when you watch a man, a man doesn't want to shoot. And so that's a concern with him. Asar will shoot it, he just doesn't shoot it very well. So, 
right, we're going to go to a short break. This was really good, but Wes is going to come on and we're going to keep talking NBA draft prospects. He's got some sheet or sham around these guys that we just discussed. So this could be a lot of fun. We'll get into that right after this. All right, we are back with a Seed and Sham segment, and we're going to get our guy Wes in here. Wes, take us away. Yeah, we're going to get started, and I think it's been a bit, all right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, Amara, you you won yeah, last time good. we played this, right, with the kind of, uh, I guess, catch-all type of questions? Cheating, cheating. No, no, I never cheat. I'm literally out my hands on camera this whole time because Bryce could not. Bryce could not just give me the credit I deserve for just being an excellent seed and sound, you know, player. Like it's it's okay. It's okay. We're gonna Amari's do this. Amari's mic picks up. up everything. So every time he's pounding away on the keyboard, I can hear it. <laughs> uh, I've never looked up seed and sound answers. A lot of times it's just me idly just browsing whatever. Like I never look up answers. I would never do that. But my hands are up to sign. Bryce, since you're uh, afraid of cheating, I'm gonna throw you this question first. All right, so you open it up. Sheet or sham. Taylor Hendricks averaged more blocked shots per 100 possessions than did Jairus Walker. Sheed. Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to go Sheed on This that. has to be Sheed after the yeah. rant we just went on. Yeah. It's Sheed, but it is closer than I thought it might right. be. So Hendricks was three, Walker was yeah. 2.9. Okay. That's wow. Nice. That's a lot closer than I thought. Yeah. I just I just know Hendricks has some of the best shot blocking numbers in college basketball. And some of that, too, was just him playing like lower competition. I think it'll translate up, but that was a lot closer than I expected for sure. No, that was yeah. I, I was like, man, this ha- this better be Sheet Amari, or we're gonna yeah. we're gonna have to go back and cut out and edit everything we just said about those two guys. <laughs> All right, next one, Omari, This one's going to you. And I, I had to get uh, both both of my guys. Price does this, so a little bit of narrative pushing by me. So, Sheet or Sham, Cam Whitmore averaged more steals per 100 possessions than Anthony Black. Ooh, that's a good one because Anthony Black. Is I mean, you like he racked up a good amount of steals. Uh, you know, I was looking up Cam Whitmore's numbers the other week, but he's not somebody looking to steals as much. So this is tough. I'm gonna go. I think I'm going to go. I'm gonna go sheet on that one. I'm gonna go sheet. I'm gonna go sham because I wanted Wes wants to push the Cam Whitmore narrative, but he's gonna put a sham question around Cam Whitmore to slow play and walk that back just a little bit. He can't push that Cam Whitmore narrative too much. So I'm going to go shit. I'm trying to do the Amari thing where I try to get inside Wes's head and and how he would ask the questions or make the statement. So I'm going to go sham. I was going to say, that was the 5D chess. <laughs> I, didn't go, I didn't go that deeply. All right, it was sham. Uh, Cam Whitmore, 3.2. Right. Anthony Black, 3.4. Both of those are kind of my guys, so I had to throw them in. I didn't realize Anthony Black was your guy like that. I know we've talked about him a little bit. How... How much, what is Wes's Pistons big board? I'll give a solid top six. Obviously, Vic, Scoot, Miller, Whitmore, Anthony Black. Oh, that's fine. Uh, Ahmed Thompson would be that. Okay. Not a Hendricks fan, Omari? Yeah, doesn't sound like it. Oh, so okay. here's the he says seven. he's got seven yeah. up on the screen. Okay. So here's the, the thing. Like, that's my big board. If it's the Pistons, I'll put uh, Hendricks down, you know, just because, uh, I mean, like they have like four centers. I just don't necessarily... I don't know if Hendricks is so good that it's worth doubling down on that position, but like, you know, as far as like actual talent, yeah, he's, he's n- number four in mine. But Pistons wise, I'll probably knock him down for sure. All right, Wes, what do you got? All right, this one's going to you, Bryce. Sheed or Sham? Brandon Miller averaged more free throw attempts per game than Anthony Black. Sham. He's confident. Ooh, he said that confidently. Yeah, he said more free throw attempts. I'm going to go Sham, too, because Anthony Black did get to the rim a lot. Yeah, th- this is one I feel like a lot of people would go Miller, but I feel like Black did a really good job. I'm going to be disappointed if if I'm not correct here. You guys are right. It was Sham. So Miller was 4.6, okay. Black was 5.3. Yeah, Black, so that was one thing with Black is, you know, you mentioned it, Omari, that maybe the athleticism and some of those, he got to the rim a lot. And obviously these numbers, these free throw rate is backing that up. And so I think what it comes down to is, can he transition that from being like this on-ball initiator to being able to do it off the ball? And you mentioned it as well, that Arkansas offense was a little kind of all over the place. Nick Smith Jr. was in and out of the lineup. Jordan Walsh, as good as he is defensively, couldn't space the floor. Like as much talent as that team had, it it was a little wonky and and clunky at times. So uh, I may be undervaluing Anthony Black. I'm very aware that this is a possibility that I'm undervaluing Anthony Black. I'm going to say right now, I think next time we do 
like a big board type deal or just review these prospects, there's a good chance I'll have Black over Rob Ben because I just think he's an all-around better basketball player. <laughs> like, I really do. And then the composition level was higher, too. But I think everything you say about Rob Ben, really the only thing he has on that to be Black is the athleticism. But as far as, like, applying those tools, I think Black got to the rim at a higher rate, thinks he's a better shooter. Uh, the defense is there. Like, we talked about Rob Ben having the tools, but Black was a plus defender, you know, created a lot of turnovers and, I just got like he's another guy like Casey Wallace. I could just see coming in next season and just being good day one. And everybody's like, how did we like, how did we miss this? I was he not four for fifth on our board. No, I mean, I think the like you said, it's the athleticism. Black's a really good passer. I mean, maybe that might be the one where you'd say maybe they're at the same level. But I think other than athleticism, I'm trying to think anything off the top of my head where I say a man Thompson is better at this right now. Defensively, I think the ceiling is higher for a man. Because like, those guys can cover ground, Omari. I, I was texting Wes. They make some really boneheaded mistakes defensively, Amin and Asar, where they end up on the other side of the lane helping when they're not even the low man or whatever, but then still are able to get out and contest on the opposite wing. And it's like, holy cow, that was not very smart play, but that was really impressive recovery and athleticism. And that's just stuff that I don't know that anybody else in this class can do. But you're right, like with Anthony, like, and these are the guys I should love. I love high basketball IQ guys. And that's definitely what Anthony Black is. The, the shot, like just from watching him last year in high school is like, it just concerns me so much. And especially if he's going to have to be more of an off the ball player. And that's the thing. I don't think he's ever going to be like an elite shooter. I think he could be pretty good. And that's probably his ceiling as a shooter is pretty good. But I feel a lot better about him getting to that point than, you know, some of the other guys in this draft. And I was just like, I just think he was just another warming shooter last year. I don't think he was bad. I don't think I said I called him a poor shooter earlier. Really, he was just underwhelming, and I think mechanically he's got to speed some things up. But I think test-wise, he's fine. And I think even if he's only a 33 34% shooter at the next level, uh, he, he gets downhill so well that I think he'll still – at 6'7", I think that that's fine. I think he can work with that. Well, and if I remember right, sometimes these guys run together for me. I'm pretty sure he had a really nice floater coming out of – high school as well. So, you know, you're talking about the touch. He was 71% from the free throw line. So that maybe that's something that, you know, you would like to see it be a little bit better. That would give you a little bit more confidence. Also, me and Anthony Black do share a birthday. I just saw as I looked him up on Real GMM. So Anthony Black just moved up two spots on uh, my big board because we share a birthday 18 years apart. So, all right, Wes, enough Anthony Black uh, and Amin Thompson conversation for there. No, no, that was good. Uh, for all the listeners, those last two questions are called pushing a narrative. It's a great example of that. Uh, <laughs> all right, so Amari, this one's for you. Uh, Sheed or Sham, Victor Wembanyama averaged more blocked shots per game than Taylor Hendricks did per 100 possessions. Ooh, that's a good one. And remember, Hendricks was at three per 100 possessions. We, we hit that earlier. Yeah, I'm going to go... I'm going to go Sheed. I, like, I know Wimby's black numbers were crazy, so that's a Sheed for me. Yeah, I'm going to say Sheed as well. I like to yeah. change it up and be a little bit different, but I, I find this one hard to believe. Mm. It is somehow Sheed. I mm. couldn't believe it's it. It's insane. It, it's, uh, listen, I did a breakdown for Wes and Jack's DBB Live. Again, if you guys aren't turning into that, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern over on YouTube. Go you know, check in with those guys. Amari. He's good. If, if the Pistons land the number one pick, I think offensively it's going to take a little. I actually think it's a good fit offensively because Cade and Ivy get to be the dudes still. They, they're going to be able to because that's not, I don't think that's necessarily Victor, at least right away. And he can play off ball, space the floor. You'll run some isolations, but he can be a play finisher. Defensively in ball screen coverage, Omari, he's going to give those two, Killian, whoever, so much extra time to get over screens, get back in front. He just helps with so much. He covers up so much and makes life so hard just because he's so long, if nothing else. I think that's where the impact comes day one. There's some, there's some little things. There's some positioning things he's got to get better at, you know, stronger, all those things. I get it. But man, what he can do defensively to help out an overall scheme is incredible. Eight foot wingspan. Uh, you know, I think, a lot of his appeal. I think what he could do on offense, like everybody talks about him dunking his own mystery. You know, it's just been a while played like which it is. But I think defensively, like that's to me where a lot of the appeal comes from. Just absolutely game changing defender. Um, going to give teams a lot of issues from day one. And then from there, just anything you get from him as a playmaker, driver, shooter, whatever, it's just it's just gravy to me. But that's 
I mean, again, like people talk about the offense, but the defense is really what's going to make him uh, a generationally good guy. Uh, yeah, like unblockable three, all that stuff is great, but some of that stuff, it takes time to translate. Defense, I think, would be elite from day one. Yeah, it's, it's going to make those guys' lives so much easier on that end of the floor. Everybody's going to be afraid to do anything against them. It's just, you're just going to see fear <laughs> every single night from every team that's up drafting them and from the opposing teams that play against them. Well, he causes indecision because he can play two guys so well. There's a clip yeah. I was watching a game and a guy like literally froze with the ball in his hands because Victor was kind of there, but not there. And he knew he couldn't get it up. But then Victor also doesn't have to leave his man completely wide open. So it makes your rotations not have to come as far. It makes them be able to be slower to get there. Like it just, it, it simplifies so much. It, it, it fixes so many issues and makes life so much easier for everybody involved on defense. Yeah, I think the deep three is going to be more important than ever because you're not going to be able to beat them vertically. So I think teams are just going to stress as far as, far horizontally as they possibly can. And you're going to see, you know, teams like, you know, to have like the Trey Youngs or Currys or whoever. Like I think the, the, the deep three is really going to be Probably the one tool that could neutralize him on on defense. And, you know, like I know people are, are some people are sick of the three point revolution, but hey, you've got you know this eight foot guy who could defend two or three guys at once coming in. So yeah, we're going to see some guys chucking deep threes and just trying to scare him a little bit. Yep, absolutely. All right, Wes, what do we got next? Next one. This will be going to you first, Bryce Sheed or Sham. Brandon Miller shot a better percentage from inside the arc than Scoot Henderson. Oh, I want to say Sham, but I feel like if you're asking it, it's Sheed. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Sheed just because I'm trying I'm trying I'm trying a new strategy this week. It's tough because the thing is, like, I don't think Scoot's numbers at the room are like as good as you would want to see from like a quote unquote downhill guy. Uh, you know, so I could go into it knowing that. I mean, neither of these guys were great finishers at the rim, and I think their percentages were actually pretty close to each other. So that's tough. I mean, that's almost a coin flip for me. I feel like if it's a question, then Brendan Miller's probably higher. Uh, Bryce is already up one on me, and at this point, I feel like I probably just need to gamble a little bit, try to separate myself. If I take the eldest episode, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's not okay. I know I have a cushion because I beat Bryce a lot in the past, but it's okay. Uh, that's <laughs> uh, We're going to go... He doesn't even remember what I said. No, you said she. I don't know. I'm just, whatever. I'm just going to say she. I'm say she. <laughs> I feel like it's true. It was she. It was close, though. You guys were yeah. right. So Miller was at 48.3 inside the arc. And Scoot was 46.5. So one thing I will say is I think I bet they're around the rim numbers were similar. Based off those numbers, I wonder if Scoots were actually better. Scoot takes a lot of mid-range, but didn't actually shoot very well from mid-range this year, especially in comparison to his first year with the Ignite. Brandon Miller played in a system of these new age analytics of three or get to the rim. Brandon Miller was actually a mid-range like that's what he went to in high school, but didn't shoot a lot of those in college. So I will say those numbers, if you I bet if you dove deeper, it'd be interesting if you dove deeper, Scoot had a lot more mid-range. I would assume Scoot had a lot more mid-range attempts than Brandon Miller. I would think so too. I would think so too. And that's one thing too. Like maybe at some point there would be a discussion on how, you know, G League, like how G League skill sets or numbers kind of translate to the NBA. Cause again, like it's yeah, we're down in overtime elite, but, you know, still, I feel like it's tough to, because you think it's such a different game from the NBA or college where you don't really have as many imposing rim protectors that, yeah, like Scoot not finishing super well at the rim probably gives you some worry, but some of that could just be teams packing the paint, right? Like, you know, I don't think they might have the best shooting. So, you know, if you have a guy, you know, shooting a mock trees at the paint every single night, it doesn't matter how good of a finisher you are. That's just going to be tough for any guy who's six two, And then the NBA, you know, court more spread out that, that could probably go up. So that's one thing I'm curious about. Like, I know people were high on Jalen Green and it hasn't really translated for him yet. So probably something to watch going forward as we see more of these Ignite guys get into the NBA. All right, Wes, how many you got left? Uh, three, if we got the time for All right, let's, uh, yeah, let's go four. rapid fire with these three, Omari. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sounds good. So quick thing. You first, Omari, we've got some Thompson twin questions coming up. Sheed or Sham? Amen Thompson averaged more assists per game than Asar Thompson. Sheed. Sheed. I think it's closer than what people think, though. I think it is close, but I'm going to Sheed. It's Sham. Amen was 5.9. Asar was 6.1. That's from the G League pa- or the wow. OTE page. Wow. Huh. Okay. Okay. Huh. I'm trying to think where I've pulled stats and saw. I knew it was close. So I knew Asar's assist numbers were, were pretty good, but. You know, it's funny. Like we talk so much about our uh, men being the on ball guy. 
that it's our, which is still true. But, you know, again, like, I think, I think those offenses are like so like quick and, you know, I'm sure they probably staggered them a little bit too that, you know, like Asar is like a good, a, a good playmaker. I think the, the thing that separates them really is just the handle. You know, Asar does not believe uh guy handle, you know, and our men does. So, you know, they, they both pass, they both see the floor, they both deliver on time on target passes. It's just one guy just can do a lot more with the ball. And I think that's what makes our men a more popular prospect. I'm having to look up the City Reapers uh, on Synergy right now just to see if Synergy shows the same thing. That is one thing. The G or the OTE stats are easier to find, but the G League Ignite ones are the ones that are really tough. So this says this actually has a min higher than a SAR on Synergy. Interesting. But it's very, it's still very, very close. So that's what I'm saying. OTE and G League Ignite got to figure that G League Ignite's really confusing because they space it out into the showcase, the, the showcase, and everything yeah. else. And yeah. It's just like it's like it's just completely nonsensical the way that they do it. It's like just from start to finish before you get to play, just give us the numbers. You don't care if it's a showcase, anything else. Nobody is trying to. And it's also just difficult to like track down. Like sometimes I'll go into the G League website and try to find certain stats and it just it just won't pull up, which I just I don't understand what's going on with that. But it's weird because the NBA stats page is just so thorough and then you get to the G League and it's like you know, it's like the outs I don't know. It's just like a completely different team made it and they clearly don't have the same care, you know, that the NBA team has. But it's just weird, it's the same interface. You would think that you'd be able to find those numbers easy. Absolutely. All right, Wes, two more. Two more. All right. Uh Bryce, this one should be to you first, I believe. So we know that Asar, at least from the OTE page, averaged more assists. According to that same page, Sheed or Sham, he also averaged more rebounds, blocks, and steals. I'll say Sheed to that. I was also going to go Sheed. Was Sheed. And then was, uh, so rebounds, blocks, steals, respectively, 5.9, 2.3, 0.9. And then Asar, 7.1, 2.4, 1.1. So they're all pretty close. I, I knew Asar was probably considered the better defender because those steals and blocks numbers and rebounding, I could definitely see. So, all right, last one here. All right, this one, Bryce, this is your guy, so we got to put it to Amari first. Jordan Hawkins shot a higher percentage from hey. three than Buddy Heald did his senior year. Sheed or Sham? I'm going to go Sham. All right, I got to go Sheed because that's my guy. Sham. Oh, and it, it actually wasn't close either. Heald was at 45.7 and Hawkins was 38.8. I was like, Heald was just absolutely insane. Like his percentage was insane. I was like, whoever whoever you put Heald against, I'm taking Heald. That's what I was going to say. And the thing with Heald is, it's not like it was just easy catching shoots either. Like he was taking really, Jordan Hawkins percentage is a little bit lower because he takes insane shots, running off screens, those type of things. And he still shot really well. But Buddy Heald wasn't just wide open catch and shoot, non-movement stuff. He was incredible that last year at Oklahoma. I think we're tied, but we can't break the tie this episode, Wes. We'll, we'll do this again soon. We'll break the... We got to remember this. Make the note somewhere, and we'll break the tie with the first question the next time we do Sheet or Sham. I was like, that last one, I was like, I, I think it's, it's, it's my turn. I was going to do opposite of whatever you said anyway, just have a chance to tie, but it was up to me, so there we go. Thank you for giving me that, that, that last question to tie, Wes. That was a good one. Yeah, it, you guys conspired together. You, I had to answer Sheed. Like, Wes knew. Wes set me up. Wes, you set me up. Wes set me up. But thank you to Wes, as always. Everything he does for the podcast keeps us rolling behind the scenes, and we love when we get his voice on the pod. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to this. Next week, guys, two episodes of the Pistons Pulse will come out on Tuesday morning, and then we will record Wednesday morning as early as we can and get you a reaction to the lottery as soon as we can. We're hoping by Wednesday at noon, so we'll drop the regular episode on Tuesday morning, and then we will have a draft lottery reaction and insight and analysis episode on Wednesday. So make sure you turn into both of those. Amari, take it away, my guy. All right. Thanks for listening this week, everyone. Uh, shout out to our audio producer, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Ajnet Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. And also a big shout out to Wes Davenport, as always. And we'll talk to you all next week for the lottery. Mm-hmm.